So I'm going to read the first two verses in Jude. It says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So, Jude was another one of Jesus' half-brothers, and he mentions his brother James here. I think it's really interesting, you know, he could have said, right, Jude, the brother of Jesus. And instead he says, no, I'm, I'm Jude, James is my brother, and I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. That was how he saw himself in this very humble way. Um, and, and similar to James, right, we have an, a book in the New Testament from James, and the, the book of James is pretty uh, classically a really rough and tumble <laughs> kind of book. It's very straightforward. It says some things very strongly. And Jude is going to be pretty similar. Uh, shouldn't really surprise us, right? These were guys who grew up working in their dad's carpentry shop. They were just kind of manual labor, rough and ready guys. And when you read about the disciples, it seems like a lot of Jesus' disciples, now there were some that weren't, but a lot of them were kind of just ready for anything and maybe a little too ready for conflict than, than they should have been sometimes. So now after he's gone through this season, and we read in the New Testament that James and Jude and the rest of Jesus' family, you know, we, we can't get it messed up. They, they, they weren't all ready to accept Jesus and excited about who he was the entire time. We read that Jesus' brothers at one point said, yeah, he can go and do whatever it is that he thinks he's supposed to do, but we don't think he's anybody. So, he, you know, we don't believe this thing he's saying about being the Son of God, right? You can imagine how difficult that might be to hear if one of your brothers came to you and said, I believe that I'm the Son of God and I have some things to teach you. You, you might have a problem with that. Well, they had a problem with that. They were prideful and weren't re receiving him. So after Jesus' death, they now are playing this important role in spreading the gospel. They're seeing themselves as Jesus' servants. And now Jude is going to write to the church to teach us about the, the danger of some things that may be coming into the church. And he starts in, in teaching this by talking about who he's speaking to. He says he's speaking to the called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. So he's talking to the people in the church, the people that God has called, the people that are sitting here, right? All of us. And that's important because he's going to say some things that are important calls and charges to us. And I don't want any of us to think, oh, so this is for, you know, this is for pastors or leaders or people who've been a Christian for a long time. He says, hey, all of the people that are called, I want to send them a letter and explain to them some, some important things. And then he starts out saying that he wants mercy and peace and love to be multiplied to them. So whatever we're about to read here, that's, that's important that we keep that in mind. If there's some things he's going to say that we're supposed to do, that if we do without an attitude of mercy and peace and love, we're not going to be doing them right. And then he says that we're the called that are kept for Jesus Christ. And that word kept is actually a pretty cool word. Um, it's a Greek word, tereo, which means to keep, guard, watch over, or keep one's eye on. And he says that we're kept for Jesus Christ. So Jesus literally is keeping an eye on us. If we're called, he's watching out for us. He's making sure that we persevere in him. So we're not, in other words, he's saying, listen, I'm, I'm speaking to the people that Jesus has called, that he's watching over. Not, we don't need to be worried like, oh, am I, am I okay? Is everything going to, am I going to make it? That's not how we're supposed to be. We're persevering. We're staying close to Jesus. And in that attitude of saying, you know what? I'm close to Jesus. I'm going to be okay. That's the heart that we're going to use to then sometimes make some difficult decisions or have some difficult conversations that we might need to have. This is all kind of important the way he sets the ground for this, right? If you ever had to have a difficult conversation with somebody and you maybe start like, okay, here's what I'm not saying, right? Or you, kinda, you have to lay the table a little bit for somebody. That's what Jude is saying. He knows, hey, I'm going to write some things to you guys 
I'm going to say some things. Let's start out with, with how I want you to approach this. And he reminds us that Jesus is keeping us for himself. John 10, 27 through 30, this is Jesus speaking. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. So this is Jesus telling his disciples, and I wonder if maybe even Jude would have been thinking about this. He heard this, right? So as he's writing down, he's remembering, that's right. Jesus said that he's the one who's watching his sheep. He, nobody's going to just come and take them out of, out of his father's hand. Now, this is important because he's about to write about some people that might be coming to the church to try and take these sheep out of his father's hand. So sometimes when we hear that, we can get really worried. We can say, oh, well, that's happening. What are we supposed to do? Well, we don't have to start from a place of being worried or afraid or maybe angry, right? Depending on your personality, you either tend maybe towards like being afraid or being angry about things like that. We don't have to, to feel like that because why? Because we're so great? No, because of what it says in John, because Jesus is keeping us. No one's going to be able to remove us from Jesus' hand. So Jude is saying that he wants them to have this mercy and grace and peace multiplied. So in order for that to happen, he wrote this letter to this, to this church. And he said, and really, obviously it's in the word, so it's for all of us. And it's important for us to remember that love and mercy and peace, these things aren't the opposite or the absence of there being some conflict or some disagreement, right? Sometimes we can feel like that or we can think that. We can say, okay, we're supposed, as Christians, we're supposed to be loving people. Right? And then maybe there's a conflict that happens or you have to disagree with somebody or maybe you even have to have a really rough, one of those rough, awkward conversations where you have to say, listen, um, this isn't a good idea. You know, you're not allowed to be here. Right? Have you ever had to have one of those conversations? I've, I've done that before. And you have to do those how? Well, in love, but that doesn't, love doesn't mean there is no conversation or no conflict. And that's important. We get off on either of those things. Some people are conflict people. Right? They love conflict. They're ready, right? They're waiting. You know, I grew, you know, when you're a little kid, especially a little boy, you, you have these a couple scenarios in your head where you're allowed to hit somebody. I know, I know it's just not me. Don't you do that, right? You're thinking about in your head, well, if somebody said something bad to my mama, then I could hit them, right? That would be okay. If somebody said something mean in the grocery store, I, that'd be fine. I could do that. If somebody beat up on my little brother, I could hit him, right? And you start, you start why? Because you, you, you have that desire, right, that you want to, to fight and defend. And that's not all bad, right? But, you know, sometimes we take that and that's kind of what we're constantly doing in our head. Well, if they did this, then, I, then it would be good for me to go. And that's all we want to do. We're fight people. And sometimes we're, we're a little more like, oh, no, I'm, I'm a loving person. We don't have any conflict. Have you ever been in one of those houses where it's like, oh, no, we're super loving. We don't have conflict. And you're like, really? Because <laughs> I don't know. Um, and that's not a good way to handle these things either, right? And this is what Jude is going to lay out for us, a godly, loving, and peaceful way to handle some of the real conflicts that may go on within, within God's body, within God's people. And we do that by having confidence that Jesus is the one who's keeping and guarding us. And if we have that confidence, then Jude is going to show us how we can lovingly guard the peace in our fellowship. And, you know, I, I kind of think of 
the, the whole picture that was in my head is, you know, one of those old like Western movies. It's like the classic Western trope, like you have this little tiny city and it, or it's a town really or a village or whatever you want to call it. And it's in this really nice place and everything's great. But then those bad men ride into town, right? And most of the people in the town, they don't know what to do. So they're kind of like, oh, somebody else will do this. Or maybe yeah, you, you fix her. No, we're just not going to do anything because that'll be bad. And then there's one guy who rides into town and he decides to do something about it, right? You watch your high noon and your all these all these movies, right? And what's kind of the central conflict of that movie is always, is the guy who's a good person, who's trying to do the right thing, is he going to be able to stop bad people who want to do bad things and still be a good guy, right? That's always the tension. It's like, well, is, what is he going to do in order to prevent this bad thing that's going to happen? And this is what we're going to kind of read as we continue through Jude. How are we going to be able to lovingly and carefully defend our, our brothers and sisters without starting to do things that are actually wrong that the Lord would judge us for. So let's start reading in verses 3 and 4, and he'll start getting into this. In verse 3, he says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So, he says, look, what I had wanted to do was write to you guys a letter about salvation. Right? I wanted to write to you about the grace of God and about how God saves us and all these you know, things that would have been maybe a little more fun for them to read. <laughs> but he says, I, I realized that what I had to do, right, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit compelled me to write instead about how you need to be careful about people who are coming in, these false evil teachers who are coming into the church to try and hurt you. And I decided, you know what, I can't let them just go unguarded from this. I need to write this kind of letter instead. And that's why we have the book of Jude, which is important because there's been some people before who've said, I don't know, Jude's weird. Why, you know, let's just leave that. And it's, no, no, God, God thought it was important for us to have this for a reason. And that, re that reason is because Jude realized from the Holy Spirit that this was a timely message that the people needed. Now, most of the New Testament, right, is instruction about salvation. Here's why you need to be saved. Here's how you can be saved. Here's all the wonderful, amazing things that happen once you're saved. So for Jude to say, I was going to write to you about salvation, right? The, the whole theme of the New Testament. But instead, I, I thought, no, I better write this. Well, it must be a really great danger for him to decide that he's going to change his focus that much. And he urges them. It's a really interesting phrase. He says, I want you to contend for the faith, to not allow whatever evil is coming in to be unopposed. This is similar to how Paul would talk to Timothy in 1 Timothy in chapter 1, verse 18. He says, This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some having rejected concerning the faith have suffered shipwreck. It's the same kind of thing with Paul, right? Paul says, listen, and it's interesting in Timothy, we're not sure, but we think that Timothy might have been personality-wise a person who's a little bit more tentative, a little bit more passive. Maybe he struggled a little bit with engaging because you see a lot of times Paul has to say, no, you, you have to say something. Like, yeah, I know that you're like a young person or these people don't respect you or I don't know, I just got here, I'm the new pastor here, but no, you, you've got to do this, Timothy. And Paul's constantly kind of like almost hyping him up a little bit and telling him, listen, somebody laid a hand on you and gave a prophecy that you were supposed to lead and do this thing. Now you go and do that. You can't let that happen. You say something, right? He was kind of encouraging him a little bit. 
And he talks about, I love that phrase, to wage the good warfare, right? So many times there's things or ideas or desires we have in our heart that the enemy likes to come in and he likes to twist up and have us send them in the wrong direction, right? Uh, there's a lot of easy answers for this, right? But I, one of the ones that I'm thinking about today, specifically what we're talking about here, is this desire to protect people or even these feelings that we get sometimes of anger at some sort of injustice, right? You ever see something happen and you just, it makes you upset. And, and sometimes, you know, we can take that now we turn it and it becomes, yeah, that guy cut me off in traffic, so I'm going to follow him to his house. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> now the enemy is using that and he's twisting it, right? And he's turning it to some sort of sinful thing. But the desire to see injustice fixed, that's not sinful. That's a God that God gave you that, right? When you see somebody being harmed or even if it's happening to you and you say, Lord, like, you know, we read that Psalm today and the Psalms is filled with this where David's like, come on, Lord. Like, do you see what they're doing out here? And he gets upset and he gets riled up, right? And he takes it to the Lord. That's a godly thing. And we just need to be careful when it says wage the good warfare. We need to be careful that we're doing this in the right way and taking it to the Lord and allowing him to direct that feeling to the way that he wants it to be used. That's why we've got this Greek word for contend earnestly, which I'm not going to try and pronounce this morning. Um, and it means to struggle against or to agonize against or to strive with. And, and it's a word that kind of would have reminded the people who heard it of like a sports context, like a, a wrestling or a boxing thing. And when you got to remember, when we say boxing, and if we're teaching, we're talking about the Greeks and the Romans, we're not talking about like gloves and a bell and, and 10 rounds. This was, they had like these intense bare knuckle boxing matches where the rules were like, hey, you can't actually remove his eye. Don't do that, right? So they, you got to think about when you're thinking to agonize against, it's like this MMA kind of like metaphor of like these guys are locked up and they're, they're doing all this stuff in there and something's going to happen and it's going to be really fast and violent once one of them busts loose and, and, and gets something going. That's this attitude that we're supposed to have when we're contending for the faith. Now, sometimes we hear this and we say, whoa, 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 that doesn't sound very loving. That doesn't sound very nice. Right? That, sounds, that sounds super violent and mean, and that's not, we shouldn't ever be like that. But this is what Jude says. Jude says that this is the heart, the intensity we're supposed to have when we're trying to protect one another in the body of Christ. Now, the way that we direct that attitude will depend on whether we need to apologize afterwards, <laughs> right? It, we, can, we can say, oh, no, I was contending. Yeah, bro, but like, she's crying, he's bleeding. I don't think you did a good job, right? That's possible. But it doesn't mean that we can take a pass on this and say, no, 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 I'm just not the kind of person who takes it very seriously when people in the church get hurt or harmed by bad people coming in from the outside. No, that's not an option, according to Jude. He says that, this is the heart we're supposed to have. Why? Well, go back to verse 2. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Right? If we're going to experience that, that the Lord wants for his church, then we have to do what, this contending. We're going to do it with this heart, right? Of, okay, the Lord has called me to do this. And it might be a little bit difficult. It might not, might not always fit with my personality. I might not like doing it. But he's called me to contend. And I'm contending because I'm remembering that Jesus wants me to help to preserve the grace and the mercy and the peace and the love in this fellowship. You've got to keep that. That's the first thing. And then the contending happens, right? And if you keep this in mind, then you're going to be able to contend in a way that isn't going to be actually doing more damage than the thing that happened in the first place. So we don't do this kind of fighting all the time as believers, right? There's some people like, that's my ministry. I'm the contender. All right, bro. Like, but, but you're not very fun to hang out with as a result of that, right? And this letter is only written to believers. This is a unique kind of fighting that we're supposed to reserve 
for anti-Christian infiltrators who come in, not just, and let's be really clear here, right? Because sometimes people get this all messed up. That's right, I'm out there telling the sinners what's up. Okay, cool, but that's not what Jude's talking about. Jude is not just saying, and I'm gonna stand on the street corner and tell that sinner he's a mess, and that's, that's not actually a ministry of anything. You're just actually not showing the love that Jesus said was going to mark all of his disciples. That's how we were supposed to be known, right? Is why, by my angry tweets? No, by the love that we have one for another. So that's not anything. That actually doesn't fit anywhere in this verse. It's specifically just against the false teachers, the deceivers who come into the church with the distinct mission of, I'm here to steal people away. I'm here to hurt people. I'm here to rip people off, to defraud them. To, we're going to read about what this looks like, right? Just that. So that's why I'm talking about rules of engagement. It's not just, that's right, everybody gets some of this. No, no, no. These people, right here, that's the direction you're allowed to fire. Only over there. And that's important because sometimes we, again, we get excited about this and we shouldn't be. This isn't supposed to be a fun thing. It's supposed to be something that the Lord is calling us to that we are obedient in doing um, out of a desire for love. Okay, so what kind of people, right? Which, so we've heard, it's not everybody. We're not just out there fighting with everybody for fun. Who are we supposed to be contending against? Well, verse 4 says, certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So, these are people, and, and these kinds of teachers, it's, it's like a broken record. Satan only has a couple plays in the playbook. These kinds of teachers always kind of do the same thing. They pervert the grace of God. That could look like a couple of things. It could be a teacher that comes in and says, you know, it really doesn't matter. You can do whatever you want. God accepts exactly however you choose to behave, and that's fine. That's a perversion of God's grace. That's not what God's grace is. It could be somebody who comes in as a legalist and says, yeah, you can be acceptable to God if you keep my extra seven rules. You're not going to find them in the book because they're my rules, but you have to keep them, right? That's also perverting the grace of God. There's also, it talks about that they open the door for unholiness and lewdness in conduct, right? This is the kind of thing... This gets really extreme when we talk about things like cults, right? A cult is a, a very unique, very strange thing where some, all of a sudden you've got this strange religious thing that comes in. And one of the things that we always, you almost start laughing in a sense because it always is the same thing. It's always about power, money, and sex. Sorry, but it always is. <laughs> and why? Because those are the things that the enemy does. He twists up these things and he, and he turns it into one of these strange, strange things. And, and often with some of these false teachers, you see this unholiness. And usually it comes out afterwards, right? With sometimes if they come into the church, they know to clean up on the outside. Yeah, I can't be doing all this strange stuff like outwardly. But later on, it'll come out that, oh, wow, there was a lot of stuff that was going on there. And it shouldn't surprise us, right? If a false teacher is going to be teaching bad doctrine on the outside, why would we think that the inside would look any better? Right? That's the fruit of that, that poor teaching. And then the last thing, and this always, almost always happens, they challenge the person and the deity of Jesus Christ. Right? Almost always. There's some weird teaching about the Trinity or who Jesus is or who Jesus isn't. That These are the, the things that they begin to come in and they, they start bringing, trying to bring into the body. So we're not contending against just anything. And we're fighting for something. We're fighting for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We're fighting for the gospel. We're not fighting just against the whole world, right? We're all going to get back to back and we're just going to make sure nobody gets in here that we don't like. That's pretty awful. And I'm, I'm not joking about that. You, have you ever been to a church like that? I've, I've been there before, right? And you have experiences like that where you say, man, I, I was coming in here thinking that I needed to be here and it turns out I do not need to be here, <laughs> right? And that's awful. Why? Because it's a horrible witness of the gospel, you're now contending about something that you're angry about. 
and not God's word and God's truth. You know, we, we should be concerned about that when that happens. We're, we're, con- and we're contending uh, not just against sin, right? I mean, yes, we fight against sin in our own lives, and we even fight against sin in our brothers' and sisters' lives. But this isn't the—you don't contend with them. You start yelling at them, you messed up, and I need to tell you. That's not loving. This is contending against perversion of the gospel. We're not contending against doctrinal differences, right? There's lots of godly brothers and sisters that I very much disagree with the way they interpret certain passages of Scripture. I just think they're wrong. But you know what? As long as they agree with the gospel of Jesus Christ, I'm not supposed to be contending against them. Now, we can have a fun conversation. I can say, you know what? I think you should look at this and that. That's all fine. I'm not out there, you know, on the Internet yelling at them for a doctrinal difference. But heretical gospel, and that's a specific term. You got to, we, we throw that term around. Heresy means something that is perverting the gospel to where it is no longer recognizably Christianity. And there's a very small number of things that you can do that, that trigger that word to accurately come up. When it does, though, that is something that we're allowed to contend for, right? You see somebody come in and say, you know, but what if instead of the Trinity there was just God and, and then, you know, he kind of morphed every once in a while and looked different? Well, I... I'm not going to get mad at you, but I will tell you that that's not the Trinitarian gospel once for all delivered to the saints. I will contend against that in love, right? Something like that. These are the things that we're going to contend for. All right. Now, verse 5 is where things start to get a little bit interesting. Remember Jude, remember Jude, construction worker. (laughs) He's just going to kind of say this stuff like it is, okay? So starting in verse 5, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Okay, that's exciting. So it's a little bit of a switch in tone, but there is a reason that he's going to this place. All of a sudden, he's going back to the Old Testament, and he's all these examples of like God's judgment. Why is this important? It's, it's very important, actually. He goes back to the Old Testament history, and he talks about places where God has judged serious wickedness that's going on, especially as it relates to or gets close to God's people. Okay? That's important. And he gives three examples. The faithless Israelites, who they came out of Egypt. They, went, they were with the congregation the whole time. They saw God's glory. We just talked about this in Exodus. They're literally standing there while God's throne room descends on a mountain and starts burning it up. And they're watching all that. And they decide, yeah, but if we worship this golden calf, we also get to do a lot of other fun stuff. Okay. <laughs> that was a cancer that was going to start eating up God's body, and God judged it. Right? And we need to remember that God is capable and willing and can, within his perfect character, judge that. Right? And that's why he's bringing this up. Then he's, he talks about, this is now, this stuff gets a little bit crazy and kind of heavy metal, but this is, this is Jude. He says, angels who rebelled against the station where God created them, and as the result, they're um, apparently bound in a demon prison uh, until the judgment of the great day. Do I understand exactly what that means? No, I have some interesting theories that we can talk about from the book of Genesis and Peter and other places. Uh, but I'll tell you that apparently God takes this stuff seriously, and it doesn't matter whether you're a human person or a spiritual being that God created, God's going to go ahead and judge you if you step out of line and start messing with his people, right? In Genesis 5, 
what we believe is that this is a, a, he's a referencing Genesis 5 where there were some angels who were doing some things that they should not be doing. And it was literally causing corruption within the human race. And God judged it very seriously. And then we talk about Sodom and Gomorrah, who, this is, you got to understand the thing with Sodom and Gomorrah. It's, it's not only, it is talking about the sexual sin that was going on, but it's not only and just that. It's also the fact that these people were preying on people and that the, the wickedness in the city was so great that literally just when a visitor comes to the city, there's all this gang of rapists, essentially, that are coming to try and assault them. It was a whole city filled with people who just were given over to wickedness. And God judged it. And there's actually, you know, you talk about Sodom and Gomorrah, there's actually evidence now I've, that I've just recently read archaeologically that what they think happened is that literally God sent a meteor, it's called an airburst meteor, that punches a hole in the atmosphere, explodes uh, above the earth, and generates force that's like well in access of the Hiroshima bomb. And so it would have literally flattened the entire city, rained burning sulfur, kind of like the Bible said, uh, down onto the city. Uh, and one of the, one of the phrases I read in the science paper before I realized I was spending too much time on this and needed to get back to what I was studying, uh, was there would be extreme skeletal disarticulation. That doesn't sound good <laughs> if you're there, right? So this is the, I mean, the literal scientific force of God's judgment, right? God says, no, we're absolutely not going to allow this. Now we read this stuff. Let's be honest. That is difficult for us to hear. As modern people, the way that we're taught to think and everything around us, the world we live in, makes it difficult for us to hear this. But the lesson we need to understand is that God is able to be perfectly loving and perfectly wrathful at the same time. And that God seems to especially judge people who flaunt his commands and try and harm other people in doing so. Now, we've got this modern idea that we can put a wedge between, well, there's the Old Testament God. I don't like him. He's mean, he's scary, he judges things, he's, that's not cool. I like Jesus. Well, I love, I understand why you're trying to do that, but that is not a biblical concept at all. Jude, who knew Jesus really well, <laughs> literally, who was Jesus' brother, would fight you on that. And that's what he's doing right here. He's saying, no, 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 let me explain to you, Jesus, the Son of God, the actions he took in the Old Testament against sin. Because you got to remember, when you talk about the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, right before Sodom and Gomorrah, and the angel of the Lord, which is a pre-incarnation appearance of Jesus Christ, shows up to Abraham and starts talking to him about Sodom and what the judgment is going to be. Jesus is not absent from that. Jesus is literally present saying, I can't keep allowing this to go on. We, we're going to do something. We can't separate those things. When we do that, what we're doing, I think, is we're trying to remove the possibility of judgment from what God could do now. And we end up creating this false idol that looks like what we think Jesus looks like. And that's a dangerous thing to do. You don't want to do that, right? You want to read the Bible and say, okay, what is God, who is God? And how can I conform myself to that? Not trying to make up something that makes me feel a certain way. The fact that Jude is using these Old Testament references shows that we can't make that separation. And, and there's other places in the New Testament that reference these exact same passages to, to make this same point. That God is perfectly able to judge. And... Here's the thing about the judgment. We're really big on certain things now, right, as modern people. Oh, we're big on justice. We love justice. We're big on taking care of people. We want to take care of people. But the thing you got to understand, and let's go back to that, like, that old like, kind of movie imagery, right? The reason why you have to have a protector is because there are bad people who want to do bad things. You cannot have justice, real, true, godly justice, where weak people are defended, if you don't have judgment. Those things go together, right? The words go together. 
And now that's a kind of a scary thing for us, but you have to understand you can't, it's actually not good or godly to allow people to be harmed and to say, well, but doing something about that would be really crazy and gnarly and bloody. Yes, sometimes it might be, but that is perfectly within God's character to handle, right? The Bible says that God is just and the justifier, that he's perfect, right? So if God does something, he's not doing it out of, you know, maybe, I don't know, have you ever disciplined one of your kids and you found out afterwards it was the other kid that did it? <laughs> I've done this once or twice, right? You say, oh, you messed up. And then later on, he's like, but it was worth it. You're like, oh, I'm sorry, but you're already spanked. So <laughs> it's what it is, right? Next time, I don't know. <laughs> um, that's man's imperfect justice, right? I'm not always perfect in, in, in the way that I deal out judgment, but God is, Amen. right? So we can know that if God is choosing to say, I am no longer going to have patience here, that he is doing that because there was a perfect reason for him to defend someone in his justice. God's justice isn't just, you know, it's not like, you know, these Greek gods you read about in the myths, right? Where one day Zeus just woke up with a headache and so he got mad and those people got smote. Like, that's, that's not how it works with God. God is a perfect father, right? And we have to trust him and allow him to preserve us from what the enemy wants to do to us. And there's different ways that he does that. Sometimes he directly acts and sometimes he uses another believer to protect us from something that the enemy's trying to do. And he's allowed to do that. He's our good father. And sometimes I have to tell my kids, look, I'm protecting you from this. You don't know what would happen if I let this happen, right? You are small and I love you, but you don't understand what I'm trying to protect you from. So you got to trust me. I'm going to keep this away from you, right? We have to do that all the time. God does the same thing for us. So if we don't, if we look at some of these examples, we say, that looks scary. Okay, but can we trust that in doing that, God was trying to protect us from something even worse happening, right? And that's exactly what God's judgment is there to do. Verse 8, so he's talked about that God can and will judge. Now he says, yet in like manner, these people also, who's these people? He's talking about the people that are the false teachers, right? Relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. I told you it was going to get a little bit weird. So, he's used these comparisons, and, and he's continuing to talk about how these false, these False teachers are going to get the same judgment because they're walking in the same kind of rebelliousness, right? This is not, you got to understand, when we're talking about this stuff, like I said before, this is not just, hey, some people have come into your church and um, they, they, they're kind of messing up and you need to, you know, pronounce God's judgment on them. No, these are people that are coming in with this, this intention to harm people, right? And this is not... <laughs> Again, this is something that God does out of love. It's not something where it's like, oh, you messed up one time. Well, guess what? I now get to bring God's meteor judgment on you. Like, that's not how that works. Now, he uses an example. He's, he's talking about these people that they blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, he uses then an example that's a little bit odd to our ears. But the point of this example, right, is, hey, apparently there was a time when the archangel Michael, who's the archangel Michael? He's one of the chief angels that God has created. The Bible talks about him being in charge of heaven's armies, right? It's about all we know about them. We're not told a whole lot about angels and demons. There's probably good reasons for that. When the archangel Michael apparently at one point was fighting with Satan over Moses' body. Do I understand anything more about that than what I just told you? No, I don't. Not from scripture, but apparently that is something that occurred. And there's other books that are not in scripture, right, that we were not given, that do talk about that. 
Um, and they're, fu they're, fu they're not bad books that you can't read. I believe the book of Enoch is one of those books, which is, again, not scripture, but just a fine book that Christians used to read. And it talks about, oh, apparently there was this time where that happened. And in doing, what's the point of that, though? Why does he bring the example up? He says, look, the archangel Michael, who stands in God's presence at all times, who is in charge of a lot of things for God, he didn't come up and start being flip and mocking Satan and doing all these things. He said, oh, the Lord is going to take care of that. That's how Michael behaved. Shouldn't we also behave with humility? That's what he's saying. Okay, That's the whole point there. But these false teachers are so arrogant that they're imagining themselves somehow more powerful than an angel, and they're going into all these wild theories, and they're puffing themselves up, and they're, they're saying all these weird, arrogant, prideful things. So this is also an important thing to know. A lot of times, some of this bad teaching that can come into the church, a lot of the places where it can get really weird is in teaching about spiritual warfare or the spiritual realm, right? Why is that? Well, like I just said, there's not a lot that we're told about in Scripture. We're told some things that we can know and understand, like there is a spiritual realm, and there is spiritual warfare, and that's real, right? But sometimes people will come in and they'll, they'll hear that and they'll start spinning all these crazy ideas and they'll teach them as like, yeah, this is definitely what you should and shouldn't, all this weird stuff, right? And it starts getting very um, weird. <laughs> I don't really know a better word. It just starts, and you know, right? You can say, oh, I don't find that in the Bible. And they're like, no, 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 but you got to understand, here's my, you know, seven-step formula for talking to demons. And it's like, no, I don't think so, right? Teaching on spiritual warfare should always be marked with caution, humility, and reliance on the power of Christ. You should... Stay away from any teacher who walks into that realm with a swagger, right? Absolutely not. I don't want any part of that. I have had some discussions with a, a pastor who I have a, a immense respect for, who spent some time over in Africa and has actually been involved in an actual exorcism or two, right? So he knows what he is talking about. And I remember one time I had one of these conversations with him and, and you know, I said, so what was that like, like, like you're having this thing, you're having this conversation, I guess, with like this demon that's speaking to this person. And he said, no, you don't talk to demons. He said, you, you pray. It's like, that's what you do. So you don't want to be talking to any demons. Right. And it was, you know, even good for me. I was like, oh, that's a good point. Right. Because why? And he kind of shared it with that, like, you know, battle veteran voice and eyes. Right. He was just like, no, that's, that's funny. You don't do that. Right. Because that's not what we're there to do. We're not supposed to be messing with those things. And sometimes people get this idea that, you know, and, and again, does the Bible say that we have God's power and that we don't have to be afraid of any of those things? Absolutely. That's true. But not being afraid is not the same thing as being arrogant and thinking that now it's your job to go and put on a show. That's not good at all. Right. We have some examples, right? Uh, from Acts, I'm not going to read it now for time's sake, but from go read Acts 19 about what happens to people when they think that they can command demons to tell them and do stuff. It's a pretty scary, kind of crazy passage. Um, the gospel and Jesus' power is what allows us to fight in the spiritual war, not our strength, right? And so that's important because, again, he's saying, look, there's these fleshly teachers that think that they're their own authority and they're coming in and telling you a lot of stuff that are going to get you hurt. If you listen to them, you're going to go out and do all these weird things and you're going to get in trouble. And I will tell you guys, this is something that's currently going to be more of a problem for the church, I personally believe, right? We have, we've, things go on a big pendulum. We swung all to the, oh, it's all about the material world and none of these things are real and that's all a fairy tale. Well, we kind of got there. We're going to go back the other way. And you're already seeing within the church all these strange spiritual ideas that are not coming from Christ that kind of come in and people start messing around with these other things. And we need to be able to tell people, hey, I love you, but that's just no good. You get rid of that. You've got the Bible. You don't need to be into that weird thing. Like, let's forget that, right? Because those things are coming more and more into the church. And even outside the church, they're becoming more and more prevalent, 
right? It's now easier and easier for me to be in town around here and meeting people who are into pagan mysticism and witchcraft and all these things. And they're doing them not as a joke or a, a LARP, but as a real thing. And so we need to be aware that these things are going on. And the way to deal with them is how? Contending for the faith. By what? Going and having a book burning? No, by loving these people. And if they try and bring these things into the church, lovingly saying, no, you're not going to do that. We're not going to be, we're not going to be involved with those things. All right. Verse 11 through 13. He goes on and he says, Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds, swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars from whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Don't, they, don't, don't ever let anybody tell you the Bible doesn't have some beautiful things in it. Just read that. It's like poetry. Anyway, it's not important, but just a thought. So he's trying to get rid of this idea that, you know, somehow, again, there's the Old Testament, that's how God dealt, and now God's not going to judge anymore. He picks out three more places from the Old Testament, and he says that these new false teachers are falling into these same errors. And the things he picks out is the way of Cain, right? Cain didn't, he was doing this form of, of some sort of religious thing, but it wasn't what God had asked for, and he was prideful and angry and arrogant. The error of Balaam is in the book of Numbers where Balaam loved profit and gold and so he tried to pronounce this curse against God's people just because he thought he could get something out of it for himself. And then it, the rebellion of Korah happens in the book of Numbers where these people decided, well, Moses is fine, but we're also fine. We could be an authority instead and God judged that in a pretty crazy supernatural way. So these false teachers, are, he said, look, they're coming in, they're destroying the love that's in the body, and they're not providing anything spiritually to feed you on. They're just taking from you. And you know, this isn't, just like a, this isn't just like an academic thing for some of us. Maybe you've come from some background where you've been involved in something like that, where you've been in a ministry or been around a teacher where that's what happened, is you just got kind of preyed on, right? Is I, I was there and I wanted to hear the gospel, I wanted to serve the Lord, and it just seemed like I was getting taken from all the time and never loved on or taken care of. And if so, hey, I'm sorry, because that's something that somebody should have rebuked and dealt with, right? That isn't something that should be going on in God's church where it seems kind of like all the good things go up there and we just kind of sit here and get hurt. That's not godly or right at all. And you see, he uses these vivid kind of word pictures to describe how these teachers are chaotic in nature and they're fruitless, right? He talks about things like the sea, which we think of the sea as kind of beautiful, but that's because we don't usually sail on it, like in a little boat with a sail anymore. <laughs> and back then, the sea was crazy. Like it was like this place you didn't want to go because you were afraid you wouldn't come back. And the idea of wandering stars, it's like a star that you can't count on. They needed the stars to be able to navigate. So he's comparing these teachers to something where it's like, they're telling me what I'm supposed to do, but then I do that and it turns out that wasn't good at all and I don't know what to do. They're confusing people. Galatians 2, 4 through 5 talks about people like this. It says, This occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Now, look, when we read this stuff, it's easy, and I'll talk about this again in a while too, it's easy for us to get really concerned. Well, who, who are these people? Where are they? How can we know what they look like so we can stop them? No, it's okay. When, have you ever been around money 
and somebody like maybe you worked at Castro or something like that. And, and, and or even more seriously, I read one time about this, how the Secret Service, which used to be in charge of cash and, and that stuff, they would teach them how to find counterfeit bills. And what do they do? They don't sit there and bring a bunch of counterfeit bills to you and see this one's messed up this way and this one's messed up this way because you'd never, you'd never get to the end of that, right? There's any number of ways how a bill can be bad. They just gave you a bunch of money, real good money, and they let you play with it and look at it all day and mess with it. And eventually you got to where you knew what good money was like so well that you could spot bad money really fast, right? Because you'd be like, ah, this isn't like this at all. That's the same way with false teaching. If you're concerned about being duped by false teaching, it's really easy. You spend a lot of time in the Word and with Jesus. And then as soon as you hear something, and you've probably had this experience before, you hear something on the radio and you're like, that's just not right. I don't even know how that's not right, but something is wrong with that, right? And then you go and you read the Bible and you're like, oh, that's not right at all. Or you ask somebody who knows and they say, yeah, you shouldn't be messing with that, right? That's how, you don't have to be worried about it. You trust that the Lord's keeping you and you know that that's why he gave you his word. You focus on what's right, and the Lord is going to spot out bad stuff easy. Like, look, the Holy Spirit, if you're saved, you have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to tell you. Right? And I can't even really explain to you all the time because it might be different, but you will know when you're in the presence of that stuff. And the Holy Spirit will say, nope, I want you to just avoid this totally. There's bad fruit of that kind of teaching. It's not that hard to spot sometimes. Verse 14. So this is where Jude, now he's going to really actually quote, I mentioned that guy Enoch. He's going to quote uh, from the book of Enoch actually here. He says, it was also about these men, talking about the false teachers, that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. <laughs> What do you really think, Jude? Again, he's, he's making it quite clear. So he quotes from Enoch. Now, Enoch isn't a book that we have in your Bible. You're not going to find it. It doesn't mean it's bad for him to quote it, right? Under the influence of the Holy Spirit, just like how, you know, sometimes you hear a teacher and they'll reference some book. This is not the Bible, but it's a good book. And he's doing the same thing. And Enoch was a person who really existed. He was a godly man in a wicked time. Genesis 5 says that he walked with God and he was not for God took him which we don't really understand what that means. So then in Hebrews 11, he shows up in the hall of faith, right? With all these people who had faith in God, even though they didn't see him. And the, the, in Hebrews 11, it says he was translated to being with God. Again, I don't know what that means. Apparently, he just didn't die. And one day he was there and one day he was with God, right? Pretty cool stuff. Probably something similar to what happened with like Elijah, right? Where God just takes him up and he doesn't have to experience death. But we do know that he was a godly man and that he lived in this generation where there was harsh evil and wicked things happening, right? You read in Genesis 5, and that's where I told you there was the, the, the enemy, you got to understand, we don't even really understand what was going on, but we know that there was satanic things that were going on before the flood that were so bad that God sent a flood, right? And it's even in the flood, you can see God's judgment, where God's judgment isn't just angry or vindictive. He's judging the world because he's realizing if I continue to let this go on, nobody is going to make it out of this. They're all going to be corrupted by this demonic thing that the enemy is trying to do. So I need to stop this from happening. And that's why he preserves Noah. And this is something that Enoch prophesied about. And he, in this prophecy, then Jude kind of uses it as an example. And he keeps describing these people that they're, they're grumblers, they're complainers, they're causing trouble, they're never satisfied. And this is the kind of thing that God is trying to protect his church from. He's, he's ready to protect the sheep. In Psalm 37, 6, it says, He will bring forth your righteousness as the light 
and your justice as the noonday. And you know, again, I don't want to harp on this, but sometimes we can get really worried about God's judgment. But for me, it gets easier to be happy and glad about God's judgment when I've experienced personalized, person-to-person suffering in my life, right? If you've had a one, maybe you're one of these people, right? And I, praise God, in some ways that's happened for me. Is I've not had this horrible life where everybody's ripped me off and I can't trust anybody because they've all been terrible to me. But maybe you have had some stuff in your life where you, you've had some situations where somebody had something over you and they were going to hurt you with it. Right? Or somebody did injustice to you, or you experienced you know, man's imperfect justice, and it, it wasn't good on your end. Well, when that happens to you directly, you realize, oh, I see why you want God's justice. God promised that he was going to take care of that. God promised that he was going to deal with the people who were doing what's wrong to me, and that he was going to protect me from that. And that's what he's talking about here. And you know, it's important to mention too, I don't want this to just be a thing of like, oh yes, these it's possible for us to be one of these people in the church as well. And I don't think that means that we're not saved. I don't think, like I've seen good and godly people where there's just been a time in their life where they've allowed the enemy to use them to just do bad stuff. And then you'll, all of a sudden you'll see them again and you're like, man, what happened to you? Like you were not doing well and now you're doing great. And it's good because you don't want that to go on. But we can allow the enemy to use us to be a grumbler or a malcontent or a person that just has always got problems and is stirring up issues, you know? And I thank, you guys don't even know, I thank the Lord so much for serving in a fellowship where this is just not something that goes on all the time. Because this stuff happens, and it's heartbreaking to see. I know godly pastors who I like, they're the guys that I look to to know how to do it, and they're dealing with this stuff in their fellowship, and they text me, and they're like, could you just pray because I don't know what to do with this person or this situation. And it's hard when that happens. And praise the Lord, that's not something that's happened in our church. You guys are people that the Lord is using to, to love each other, not to be causing problems for no reason. And that's good. And, and please know that if anybody in this church ever comes to correct you on something, right, maybe some action that you've been doing or some doctrine that you're holding that we realize is bad for you, we're doing it out of the heart of wanting to preserve what the Lord is doing here, right? I'm not doing it because, well, I don't like them, and here's my excuse to tell them something, right? Like, I'm, I promise you, man, maybe other people struggle with that. I do not struggle with loving conflict. That's not a sin that I deal with in my life. What I struggle with is not wanting to talk to anybody about these things. And so I'm telling you right now that if me or, or Pastor Tyler or one of the elders or anybody in this body, because that's what this book is saying, is that we're all supposed to do this for each other. If somebody comes to you and says, I just need to tell you that you've got to let that go. Like, you can't be doing this right here. We're doing that because we love you, first of all. And second of all, we're doing it honestly because we love everybody in the fellowship and we're trying to protect any way that the enemy could come in and start doing this kind of thing we're reading about in here. So I hope you'll be able to receive that because I know that's a hard conversation. Then it has to happen sometimes. And I've had to receive those conversations for myself before and it's not fun. But it is important that we receive it in the spirit that it's supposed to be intended. We don't want to use those conversations as an opportunity to just be combative. But sometimes they do need to happen. And it's to keep us from experiencing all this chaos and, and awful stuff that could go on. Right? We don't want... We just don't want the body of Christ to be a place where there's people getting ripped off and hurt all the time. And sometimes we have to be strong to keep that from happening. All right, verse 17. We're going to make it. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit... Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. 
and have mercy on those who doubt, saving others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So he's going to say two things. Firstly, he says, look, don't get surprised when this stuff happens, right? It's so easy, guys, especially nowadays. You can spend, if you want to, you can spend all 12 hours of your awake day or however long you choose to be awake. You can spend all of that time worried about people that are doing bad things in churches that you will never enter or that you'll never meet these people, you'll never see them, but you can be worried about them, right? Because the, the, the world will present this information to you, right, in your pocket. And you can be constantly obsessed over, well, there's this bad guy, and he's doing bad things, and I don't like him, right? We shouldn't be surprised when these things happen. Jesus told us, the, the apostles told us, that there was going to be false teachers and wolves that were going to come in. We don't have to be shocked or afraid of those things. And you know what? Some people might even shame you for that. They might say, well, aren't you angry about this and that? And you might say, no, I'm just going to go ahead and... Trust that if the Lord brings that over here, where I'm, the fellowship that I'm part of, we can handle it because Jesus is going to take care of us. Well, you need to be worried. You need to be reading all the blogs I'm reading. I don't think I want to do that, right? <laughs> it doesn't seem like it's great for you, so I will also not do that, right? And I'm not, I'm not saying that we shouldn't understand. Of course, we should understand what's going on. We should be aware. That's all true. But awareness is not the same thing as constantly being afraid. And we're not to be causing unnecessary divisions. It's also important, right? Some people use this, this idea of, yeah, we need to be defending the faith, so that's why I'm going to tell half your church that they're going to leave because of this minor thing that I don't like. No, I'm not, that's the person I'm about to discipline, right? Not this thing. We need to not be allowing these, these splits or problems to come up where they shouldn't be. A, a division is a serious thing. You better be, if you're saying that that's what we're going to do, there better be a good godly reason for it. <coughs> yes, we need to confront troublemakers and issues, but we've got to do it out of the love that we have for the people that are around us. And our hearts need to be filled with God's Holy Spirit and His love to carry this out, right? And, and, and that, guys, that does mean for you too. This wasn't addressed just to leaders, right? You guys, if you see somebody that's tearing at people or hurting people or preying on weaker, the Bible talks about weaker brothers who are unstable, right? Meaning, especially if it's somebody who's a new believer and they don't know, you know, they're just coming in and they want to love Jesus. They're excited. And somebody comes in and says, well, you know, like you should probably dress differently then Jesus will be okay for you to come in here. Man, it's okay to call that stuff out. I, I give you permission, right? That's, I, we are, you, the, the church is about the whole body. If you're there and you're seeing that, you can gently say, you know what? You got a verse for that, Amen. right? It doesn't have, you don't have to be angry with anybody. There's no shout. Just, hey, is, are you sure that that's what we're going to do right now? Right? That's okay. That's what you're supposed to do. Jesus, and, and this is where he kind of transitions and he starts in verse 21, 20 and 21, he starts talking about how our hearts are supposed to be and our attitude we're supposed to be towards people. Jesus wasn't harsh, right, towards the sinful people that came to him, right? People came to him and were messed up, man. They had been doing some stuff. They'd been doing some stuff five minutes ago and they came to Jesus and were ready to receive from him. And those are the people that Jesus wanted to love. Who was Jesus a little bit intense with? Lots of people. He was a little intense with the, the hangers-on, the people who just kind of wanted to get the blessings and then split when it got tough. He was tough with the, the people who were just fake, the religious hypocrites who were just wanting to front for people or, or wanting to have a dispute with him about nothing. Jesus didn't have any time for that. He was tough on hard-hearted and unrepentant people, but he wasn't tough on people who said, you know, there's literally people who said, Lord, I, can you help out my unbelief because I would like to believe. That was enough for Jesus. He said, yes, I like that's faith. I like that. That's the people that Jesus wanted to be with. And in the same way, when we see somebody who's doubting or struggling, we go get that person. That's not the kind of person we contend. You don't contend with somebody who's really genuinely wanting to come and be with Jesus. 
You contend with somebody who's really genuinely wanting to come and hurt that person. <laughs> That's who you, you're able to stand against, biblically and in a godly way. I love that, 22 and 23, that we save people by snatching them out of the fire, right? Sometimes that's what you've got to do. You've got somebody who they don't know any better, and it's like your little kid with a stove. You're like, ah! And then they cry, right? Because you scared them, and you hurt their arm when you yanked them, but you're like, listen, like, I'm sorry that hurt, but this was more important, right? And you, it's okay to do that with people. If you see, especially, again, I'll just go back to you. If you see a young believer, or they're caught up in some kind of teaching or something that you know is no good for them, don't just sit there and let them do that. They might be upset with you. They might be a little offended. Oh, you think I don't understand? Yeah, I do. I love you. Like, I, I know you and I love you and I want to keep you from that bad thing. Like, I'm sorry that might have offended you, but I did it because I loved you, right? You can do that. So we're going to close with verses 24 and 25 as we prepare for communion. This is listed as a doxology here in, in, in my Bible, meaning it's kind of like a, a closing thing that you might have even been sung, right? We sing a doxology. It says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Christ Jesus our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. So he goes back to right where he started, right? Who's going to be able to keep us from stumbling? Who's going to present us blameless? Right? Who's going to keep this kind of stuff out of his church? Jesus is going to do it. Not my discernment ministry or my being angry or whatever. No, Jesus, is, he's got that. Now, he wants to use me and you and all of us to do that, but he's promised that he's going to do it, right? He said, look, I'm going to take my bride, the church, and I'm going to present them. I'm going to take care of them. That's what Jesus has promised to do. So we don't have to live in fear or in anger about these things. You're not going to rage your way to perfect doctrine. I promise you, <laughs> right? It's not going to happen. I've tried. <laughs> and you're also not going to be able to hunker down and just... Keep yourself away from all the icky bad things and all the icky bad people, and, and that's how we're going to keep the church. No, that's not what God's called us to do. He says, build yourself up in your most holy faith so that you can go out into the darkness, so that you can snatch people out of the fire, and you can do those things with the love and the joy of Jesus, right? Not out of anger or fear or whatever. We don't have to fight the darkness, right? You don't what? You, you're... You wait, run into a dark room and you start opening the window and trying to shove the darkness out the window. No, you turn the light on. Super easy, and now the light's on, and now you don't have to worry about it, right? And so our war isn't with those people that are coming out of the darkness. Jesus has already won that fight. Our job is just to remain close to him and to watch out sometimes for people who do want to hurt our brothers and sisters, and, and that's okay to do. Jesus and Jude, through you know, Jesus through Jude has told us that that is right. So what we're going to do is as we take communion... And if, if I can ask you if the worship band could just come up and just kind of play quietly while we do that, and you guys can start passing communion out. As we take communion, I'm going to read um, from 1 Corinthians, and this is where Paul is reminding us why we have communion. But at the end of this passage, it's a little bit of a longer passage, at the end of this passage, he also reminds us about kind of the, some of the same things that Jude talks about, how we need to be careful that we're not allowing division to come into something that Jesus paid literally the ultimate price to create, right? Jesus died so that we could sit in a body, in the body of Christ together, and enjoy all the things that he bought for us. So I'm just going to read from 1 Corinthians, and then we'll pray and take communion together. 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23, says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it 
and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Again, it's Paul. So Paul had had some really serious things he needed to say to the Corinthians who were acting. They had people within their fellowship who were doing this stuff. They were coming in just for their own gain and even in just like simple, silly things like they were using the communion feast as a way to just be a glutton and, and get things for themselves. It was really messed up. And in that, Paul is saying very specifically, he's like, look, you have to be careful. This is very serious stuff. Now, our response to that shouldn't be to be afraid or wonder. Well, he's saying, look, examine yourself. And, and this is something that we always do as believers. If we, when we hear a message, even a message today that, hey, there was some tough stuff in there, right? I was studying this message and being like, Lord, am I causing division, right? I'm, you, it's okay to search your heart over these things. That's exactly how we should be doing, especially before communion. It's a good time to say, okay, Lord, let's take a minute. Let's just let you look in my heart and see, is there anything that I've been doing that's like this? And if there is, look, we don't despair. We don't worry about it. We take it to the Lord and we say, Lord, Forgive me so that I can be the, a part of the body like you want me to be. So I can be doing the work of caring for my brothers and sisters in this way. 